0: specifically focused on the shield of faith. We'll cover them all, barely touching most of them, zeroed in on the shield of faith. Before we get started, we're going to open in prayer. Please bow your heads. Father, we thank you for this time to get together. We thank you for the ability to freely, without fear of recourse, to come together. That is not the case. Our brothers and sisters in Nigeria are falling daily. We ask that you would bless them and protect them. Guide us as we go through your word, and please let all of this work. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So, we'll start here in Ephesians 6, verses 11 through 18, and it is on the screen. It says, put on the whole armor of God, that that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Remember principalities and powers, those are ranks or levels of the evil side assigned areas. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having gird your waist with the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. (coughs) Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you may, no, could, no, will be able to withstand or quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And see that says all, not some, not most, all. and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, with which or which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So again, we're zeroing in on the shield of faith. Now, all of this they would have understood as the soldiers of their day, the Roman army. But if we talked about stuff of modern day, say, helmets and rifles and plate carriers or tack vests and camo, you would picture a modern-day soldier. So when he's speaking to them, they're speaking or they're hearing him talk about those people. Now, the point of a shield. If you talk to anybody probably under the age of 20, they don't think of you picking up a shield. They think of you in their video games with a shield around them of this impermeable force Shields up, phasers to stun, all that stuff. That's what they're thinking. So the strength of your shield equals your protection. That makes more sense to them than it does to us because we are holding the shield. We see it as this box. They see it as this all-encompassing force field around them. So the younger people probably have a better idea of what God is saying than we do or Paul's people did because they think of just what's in front of them but actually he's talking about an all-encompassing shield so now the shield of faith reminding you what it says above all taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one above all before we look at the Roman armor I want to take a minute and look at armor that makes sense to us what are we using here today Most of you, if you see the SWAT movies or anything, you're going to recognize a shield that looks like this. This is called a phalanx shield. Most of the Canton cars, the SWAT team, we all use this shield right there. (coughs) It's actually angled. It's named after the fighting formation of the Roman army, the phalanx. And it's very hard, textured on the outside. And its whole purpose is to stop bullets. Now, if the bullets hit the shield, you know it, you're going to feel it, but it doesn't hit you. It's that separation that makes the shield so effective. If the shield fails, (coughs) it reaches the vest. If it hits the vest, there's a thing called back force deformation. (coughs) What that is a fancy word for is basically getting punched by a bullet. So you have this flexible Kevlar in modern-day armor that flexes. So when you get hit, it punches in, but it slows the bullet. So you lose penetrating trauma. But it stops it. You're still going to have bruising, depending on what you get hit with, broken ribs. And it sucks. But you don't have a hole in you. Now, if you take a pen, which is the size of most bullets, and you get stabbed with it, you don't die all that mo- often, but bullets do. Why is that? It's because of the speed. Their bullets were arrows back then. Swords would be the stab. When the bullet goes in, it moves stuff, creating a blast wave. And that's what tears organs and all sorts of stuff. Much like when an earthquake at the bottom of the sea shifts it, if it moves just a little bit, you get a little wave. moves several feet you get a tsunami, because it's moving all the water above it. So, I am a little distracted by this voice in my ear, I will be honest. So, modern day armor is flexible, meaning it will come back, so it's not stuck to you. But in Paul's day, if that breastplate bent in, it's metal, it's dented, and it's not coming back out. So you're going to remember that you got hit, until you can get that stuff off you. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's the shield of faith. It's meant to absorb or give you a standoff so that you don't get that that hit in your actual body, but something that's out from you. create space. But there's a deeper meaning in what he's trying to tell us, and that's where we're going to look today. So I want to ask you, what is another word you can think of would mean shield or what it does and what we're going to look at I'm going to give you a minute here to think about it is the word where it comes from so if I brought you good protection okay anybody else got one people on zoom you can say something because I'm listening to myself echo in my own ear so that I can hear you so feel free to jump in <coughs> but if I take you into a room there's chairs everywhere. Rocking chairs and lazy boys and folding chairs and stools and just stuff you can sit on. And I go, please sit in the chair. You're going to go, which one? The chair. But if I say, the padded chair that's fixed, now you know where you're supposed to sit, right? I say that for a reason. The Greek word used for shield here is Thyrios. It's the only place in the Bible that it is used. But it is a root word or comes from a root word and that root word is thyra this root word has a meaning and they would have known that meaning because they speak that language we don't get that remember it's a translation in English the original language is very specific so unlike rocking chair regular chair Where thyrios would be, please sit in the rocking chair, thyra would be chair. It's what is known as a lemma. Lemma is the root word from which other words come from. Does that make sense? Yes, no, somebody help me here. Am I losing anybody? Okay. So what do we think? We have protection. Does anybody have any idea what that thyra, another meaning of that word could be? What's that? Somebody on Zoom had an idea. Hearing none? Thyra actually means door or entrance. It's used four times in the entire Bible, or four different root words come from it in the Bible and it's used 46 times let's break those down because it'll give us a better idea of what we're looking at thyra again its root words are used 46 times it's used 39 of those times so it's the one used most of the time used to mean door entrance or gate 34 of those times it's as door one time it's a doorway but it still means a door three times as entrance two times as a gate. They, they translate the word meaning different things. Try and pronounce this one. Thyroros, something like that. It means doorkeeper, along the same lines. This is protecting the door. It's used four times. All four times are in the gospel. Mark decided to use it once. John used it three times. Thyris, that means window. Still a point of entrance, still a point of weakness for an attack, but still an opening and such. And then we come to thyriotes, which is where we know it's only used once, and that's the shield. So, what is it saying? That our faith is the doorway, the gateway, or the entrance through which all attacks must come. So, in my belief, When Paul wrote this letter and they read it, what they saw was, when I pick up my shield of faith, I close the door, the gate, or the entrance to attack. But if I put down my faith, I open the door, the gate, or give way of entrance to attack. Gamers, if you lower your shield, you can't hit as much. It's the same thing. That's something that I think we miss reading it in our English we looked at modern-day weaponry or shields here's a Roman shield it's roughly four feet long two and a half feet wide it is made by three different layers of bonded wood now for those of you who have ever seen the karate people going to break wood the person who's holding it looks at it and they're looking at the grain of the wood because if you kick along with the grain of the wood it snaps much easier if you turn it the wrong way and they kick it it tends to hurt their heel so what did they do they took those layers and they alternated the grain making modern day plywood and giving it much more strength they then took leather laid it over the top and took bronze and put it as a rim around it to protect from slashing attacks because otherwise the wood would chip make sense So, each soldier was given their shield, and they had it for life. They had to do maintenance on their shield. So what did they have to do? Every day, they had to anoint their shield with oil, or it would become brittle and thus fail in battle. We have to anoint our shield of faith every day through reading and prayer, or it will become weak, and we will fail in battle. Knowing their enemy, if they believed they were coming up against an enemy that would shoot flaming arrows, or as Paul says, fiery darts, they would right before the battle soak it in water. That way when the arrows hit, (coughs) it would self-extinguish them instead of setting their wooden shield on fire. So now we see that they have to know not only the tactics, but the weaponry of the enemy to know how to prepare to defend from it. That applies to us today in our spiritual life. Well, let's look at the tactics. Tactical uses of the shield. The phalanx is the formation. If you remember the 300, how they made those lines, that's the phalanx. So basically the shields, you can they would be at three different places or ways. If the attack was far off, they would be spread out. Modern-day riot teams refer to this as extended interval. They're ways apart. Several benefits to this. uh, Depending on weather, it allows (coughs) airflow. You can move people through, bringing water, supplies, and the generals can see through the formation to see what's going on. Your enemy also sees this as appearing to be a bigger force or it appears there are more people. As things got closer, normal interval. They're about arm's length apart. Still have that ability to move through the formation to supply and resupply your people. Still have the ability to see downrange so that you can apply whatever tactics and make the decisions on the battlefield as needed. But when the attack was coming, they would close ranks and actually overlap their shields. And when the charge came, it hit a wall, not a single shield. The men behind would lean in, support those in front, and those who hit it would stop. If you were on the side, they would attack you with their swords and their spears. And if you were so unlucky as to split the shields, that sword would come through and remind you that this is probably not a place you want it to be. And that's how they fought. Yes? Okay. Yep. Uh, let me see here. There's only about two people who aren't muted on Zoom. Apparently, they're getting some background. So, uh, Eric, can you mute? Eric walked out. When Eric comes back, I'll ask him to mute. Okay. Well, hopefully we fix that. No problem. The formation you see up here is what was known as a tortoise. We call it shields and support today. They would close. <coughs> the benefit is that the front line would either kneel or be shorter. Your taller people in back. You would overlap your shields, much like shingles. And they throw things at you, and those just roll off the front. Those legionnaires, or the Romans were nearly impervious to rocks, arrows, and spears when in this formation. The problem is, is you really can't advance or maneuver. You're pretty tight in there. Questions on the formations? How does this apply? This is a picture of the 300. If you've ever seen the movie about the Battle of Thermopylae at the hot gates There. It's actually recorded in the Bible, in the book of Esther, because Xerxes is the king, but his other name is Ahasuerus, which you'll see in the book of Esther. So after the banquet where he deposes Queen Vashti, he goes to this battle, and 300 Spartans hold off his absolute massive force of people by plugging one hole, and they end up saving their country. they all die but they saved their country by delaying it. When he goes back, disappointed from that battle, that's when his close court try to make him happy and cheer him up, and that's when Esther is chosen to be queen to come to power, thus saving the Jewish people from slaughter and giving them the Feast of Purim, if you know the book of Esther. But how did they fight? Why were they so strong? because they interlinked their shields and everybody did their job. And they frustrated them for days on end. The key there is nobody fought alone. Yet in the Christian faith, we seem to think that we should be doing this fight alone. We don't want to tell anybody when we have need. We'll ask for prayer, but we don't reach out. And so instead of Being this wall, we get separated. And then our shield doesn't work as well because it's supposed to be amongst the cloud. We are a cloud of witnesses. We are one body. We don't just take your arm off and walk away. Think of hunting techniques. Have you ever seen National Geographic where the lion's hunting a zebra? What do they go after? They go after the young the weak or the old in our study the young and the weak would be those who either are just coming to faith or have just come to faith meaning their shield isn't that strong because when we looked at modern day uh, ballistic the way they figure that out is what's known as destructive testing they'll shoot it stopped it good we'll shoot it with something else or more times When it fails, they back it up and go, this is what it's rated for. If you use destructive testing on your shield of faith, it doesn't operate that way, because you're not going to take a shield with a bunch of holes in it, and then actually put it on the street, or into battle. Our shield works more like muscles, and that is, as you lift, you might increase weight, say, tribulation, and as it... Tears down a little bit, and we have a crisis of faith, but it doesn't fail, and we trust God and we get through that, it comes back stronger. Much like lifting. And so, as we get these little hits, we wonder, why isn't God protecting me? Well, what he's doing is he's strengthening. He's letting your shield build up because you have to build your shield up to be able to quench all of them. It's not overnight. That your faith is so strong that you can just coast through any disaster that might come upon you. And so he's allowing them to train you. Oh, I talked about the lions and the zebra. I never said anything about it. The old would be those who have been in battle for a while and their shields starting to wear down. So what do the lions do? They chase the zebras until they cut them from the herd. Whatever their target is, they separate it. The 300 failed when a traitor told them how to get around them. We fail when the enemy comes against us with, you're not good enough, true Christians wouldn't do that, doubt, lack of confidence, something about that. And what do we do? Do we reach out and help or ask for help? You ladies are far better at that than we are. Now, what do we do? We walk off into a corner, and what happens? We're separated, and then we become weak because it's only our shield that's withstanding the attack versus the entirety. And so knowing the tactics and the weapons of the enemy, look at modern-day church. We went from what was in the book of Acts as one united front that was just cruising forward, doing amazing things, to today, Where we argue because we believe that our church is the building we are in or the denomination we have, where we argue about little things here and there. And what has the enemy done? He's taken our (coughs) shields and our formation, and he's pointed us at each other. And instead of having two flanks, we now have eight or ten, and we are a much smaller fighting unit. And so we're not effective that's the problem with the church we're not working together we're more worried about arguing with each other about little insignificant things than we are about true doctrine and that's the tactic of the enemy (coughs) so the shield of faith above all taking the shield of faith on which or with which you will quench all the fiery darts of the enemy but again this is where, knowing that our Bible was written in English, we have to take a step back. Before somebody yells at me and, and stomps or sends me bad comments, the Bible is perfect. <coughs> I know the verse. Inherit, it's used for teaching reproof and all of that. Yes, it is. It is perfect in its original language. But it was never written in English in the original language. It was written in Hebrew, parts in Aramaic, parts in Koine Greek. So it is our job, although the translations are very good, they're not perfect, they are translations. And so we have to mine it a little bit to see if maybe it could be tweaked a little bit here and there. And God will put that into our minds and our spirits so we can find that. And one of those I want you to look at is this word above. That word above is epi. It's used 875 times in the New Testament. Only 35 times is it translated above. And if you want to know what that looks like, right there's a graph of every one of the 835 times it's used. And if you see above in the gold, I had to add the word. It's used so few times that it's not even listed in that (coughs) graph. However, 784 times it's used as on, which is that blue, or purple, depending on which screen you're looking at. So let's look at it with on. On all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now if you're like me, (coughs) when I change that word to on, above makes it almost seem like it's more important. But on makes it seem as if it's built upon. It has some prerequisites. Let's take a look at this. Paul lists them in a specific order. And there just might be a reason to his order. We just read it as if maybe, "Ah, he thought of this one here, and he thought of that one there. But I dare say, (coughs) there is a reason for the order. So if we look at them, truth, known as the belt, you have to know you're a sinner, and you need a Savior before you accept Jesus. Because if you don't need him, why would you accept him? Once you come to the truth, you have the belt. But we don't have truth. We have to find his truth. So we take his belt and we put it on. Back then, they wore the really long, I don't know how to say it, other than man skirts. And so when they had to go to battle or move quickly, they would gird themselves, which means they would pull it up, tie the belt, and that gave them the ability to move their legs without the restrictiveness of the man skirt. Then you come to the breastplate of righteousness. You have to know that you're a a sinner. Then you have to know the standard to get to heaven, and that's perfection. Nothing less will get you in. That's why we're all screwed. But Jesus is perfect. And we take his breastplate of righteousness and we put it on over our heart and our lungs and our organs to protect us. So we've taken two of his things now. And then we come to the gospel. This is known as the shoes. It shows how to obtain that righteousness through the sacrifice of Jesus as our Savior. The gospel is basically that Jesus is 100% God who came as 100% man, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, sacrificed himself on Good Friday, stormed both chambers of Sheol, Hades in Abraham's bosom on Silent Saturday that we never talk about. And then he comes out the other end on Resurrection Sunday. Then he ascends to the Father where he makes intercession for us. That's the gospel. That's what we stand on. That's what gives us our traction to move forward and backwards, hence the shoes. These are the foundation that you need before you can have faith. If you don't need him, why would you have faith in him? If you don't need his righteousness, why would you seek him? And if you don't need the gospel, you're not going to go to him. Now, even people who don't go to church can quote you John 3.16. But most people who go to church can't quote you John 3.17. And I think there's a word in there that gives us a little bit of pause, and that's why. Let's take a look at it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son... That whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We're good with that. But God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And that's where we panic. Might. The enemy goes, you might be saved, but you're still doing this stuff. Christians don't do that stuff. In fact, if you look over here, it lists all these things. These people won't get into heaven, and you've made almost all of them. So why do you think you're, you're going to be saved by him? And that's the cutting of the herd. That's taking your shield and trying to turn you away. But might doesn't mean Jesus might be able to save you. Jesus is 100% to save everyone. He came and died for everyone. The onus is on us that we might accept that truth and that sacrifice. And then you shall be saved but you also have free will. So you can reject it. And that's why you might be saved, because you might say no. And Jesus is not going to force you. The other thing is, you get people who argue with you. Yet John three sixteen, His only begotten son. Begotten. And I'll tell you that means he was created, begotten. He came from a woman. He was created as a baby, and born of a woman. So he's a created being. And all of a sudden we go down this slide, Begotten is not what that means. Begotten is the Greek word monogenesis. And I'm going to read you the definition so I don't screw it up. Monogenesis means pertaining to what is unique in the sense of being the only one of the same kind or class. Unique only. There is only one God. We talked about it a couple months ago. Yahweh, the Trinity, they are one God. They're the only one like them. Jesus is of God. He is unique. And he makes up two unique traits. He is monogenesis to God the Father, in that he is the same. But he is also monogenesis to us, in that in the flesh, he is the same as us. So if we read this, and you'll see why John didn't write it this way, because it's really complicated. But if we explain this through John 3.16, it gets a lot longer, but it says, For God the Father so loved the world that He, God the Father, gave God the Father's only begotten and unique Son, who's the same as Him, but also like you, that whoever believes in this unique, same class as God, same as you, Son, should not perish but have everlasting life. And now you see why he just picked those words and said, you guys need to figure it out. Because it doesn't flow well the way I just read it. But that's one of the ways it would go. Monogenesis is also used in Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Begotten is monogenesis. Now people will tell you, there is an error in your Bible, because Isaac wasn't his only son. Ishmael was not only his brother, but also the elder, the firstborn. And then he had other wife, or another wife and other children after Sarah died. So how is it his only son? And that throws us for a loop. Because even God promises, go ahead, There you go. He's the child of promise. So God promises Ishmael a nation because he comes from Abraham. But Isaac is the only child of promise that God promised through which his covenant would go. Isaac is born after the covenant. He is circumcised at eight days old, which science tells us is the greatest level of vitamin K that the male body will ever have and vitamin K helps in clotting yet that's the day they tell us to circumcise them I don't think it's a coincidence however son is in italics which means it's there for clarification in your English Bible but doesn't exist in the original language so he offered up his only begotten he offered up the only one that was his child of promise that was like him because Abraham had the promise. And that's where we only get Isaac. Isaac is the only one who qualifies for that. Just as Jesus is the only one qualifies as the Son of God. Monogenesis. If you've forgotten, we're walking through the armor to see how it applies. Now we finally get to faith, the shield of faith. We finally arrived at where we were trying to get. But how can you develop faith if you don't first have the truth, the righteousness or the gospel because isn't that what our faith is based on it is a gift from God and we're also looking at epi as being on and in James two nineteen, it says you believe that there is God or one God you do well even the demons believe and tremble I think if he wrote this today, it would be you believe, in, you believe that there is one God, you do well. But heck, even the demons believe and tremble, which means if you believe in God, you're not saved. If we had an interfaith service right now and we brought in Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists and any number of other faiths, and you go, who believes in God? All the hands go up. Are they all going to heaven? Jesus is the only way, the truth, and life. No one goes to the Father except through Him. So when you ask that, everybody's hands go down except the Christians. And now you see the difference between in and on. Look at Acts. Acts 16.31. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Some people have told me that verse And I'm saved. my mom does really good, she's a Christian, she does good. Dad's really good, he's a Christian. That's not what it means. It means that when you believe, you will act and teach in such a way that your household will then believe. Nobody's faith will cover you, and your faith can't cover anyone else. It is an individual choice. No exceptions. But it also says, on. It's in yellow. And that word is epi. So it's translated as on. Now here's an interesting thing, (coughs) a little bit of a jump. But it says, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. (coughs) Now, this seems like a jump, but remember we have to know the tactics. And who are we fighting against? Principalities and powers, not against flesh but other flesh are used by the enemies to attack us. The way I look at this, (coughs) kind of like North Korea. The North Koreans generally don't want to be in North Korea. That's why they keep trying to run across the border. But what happens when they try to cross the the border into South Korea? The North Koreans shoot at them so that they cannot defect. Why? Because the lie that the dear leader is the greatest person the world has ever known and that this nation is taking care of them far better than these Western or anywhere else countries, becomes a crumbling lie as soon as they know the truth. And that'll come brightly in focus as soon as they cross into South Korea. (coughs) I don't see people, other than missionaries every now and then, trying to break into North Korea. Everyone's always trying to flow south. Remember, we're in a war. There's two sides to every war. And what this says is, your default is on the side of the evil. It can only be on one one side, and there's only two sides, good and bad. We never look at salvation as defection. That's why the enemy gets so mad. When you choose Jesus, you defect against the enemy. Now, unlike the North Korea (coughs) example. Once we defect, the Christian role is to infect anyone else who is still held captive. That's our job. That's our role. Occupy until I return. Occupy is not a defensive term. So we have to defect for salvation. So once we get to salvation, which is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Also the helmet, because it guards your mind. We join the army of Christ. Then, we get the word. It's also known as the sword. It's the only offensive weapon listed. We fight with the word of God. The word of God, if you talk to people who aren't Christians, they go, I've read this thing and it's just confusing, it makes no sense. Well, if I handed you a book in Chinese and you don't read Chinese, it doesn't make any sense to you either. Remember the breastplate covers the lungs. We have the Holy Spirit. What happened when Adam and Eve were created, or when Adam was created? God breathed life into Adam. The lemma for the three words of breath, spirit, and wind is ruach. They all come in the same word. So the breath of life, the wind of God, the spirit of God, Are all of the same thing, same word. So as soon as you experience salvation, you get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Who gave all of the writers the inspiration to write the word? The Holy Spirit, which is God. But until you accept Him and have salvation, who does not indwell you? The Holy Spirit. So accepting the Holy Spirit is like getting the decryption key to the Bible. That's when it starts to cut between not just the bone and the marrow, but the spirit and the soul. That's when it comes to life. Just like Adam was a heap of dirt laying in the clay until God breathed his life into him. It's basically what we are spiritually, and the Bible is, unless you're looking into it. He'll grant you a little bit of access there, enough to, for you to make that choice. But once you accept him and you get the key, it's not just a book. It is alive. And it will teach you and instruct you throughout the rest of your life. 1 Corinthians two ten through 12. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, We come to our last thing listed by Paul: prayer. Modern-day people have called it the spear. Paul doesn't say that; they say it hits hard and it can fly far. That's why they call it the spear. The, the true power of prayer comes from knowing the word and praying the word back. Let's look at Dan or David, King David. If you've ever been like me and you read the psalms and you see david and he's going god do this god free me from this god you have to do this and your initial take on that is this guy's a little forward he's trying to order god to do things who does he think he is if you read a description of him he's about five foot nothing redhead and ruddy and he's telling god what to do then you take a step back and you go well how does god see him He's the apple of my eye. In the millennial reign, he'll basically be vice president. Well, maybe I'm looking at this wrong. David gets himself into a whole lot of pickles. In fact, he's probably in the pickle jar. What he is doing is he is actually going, I knew your word, and I trusted you. And so instead of like us, where we get to this problem, and we're like, we're supposed to go this way. But because I'm looking at my circumstance and not my Savior... It's really easy. If I just go around it, nothing bad is going to happen. But what happens? If you're walking with God and you decide to take a turn, you create separation. And then we go, why, why am I getting attacked? Well, because you have free will, and he's not going to trump it. And he's still going, hey, I'm over here. And once we start that slide, it seems easier. And then we end up running down this path trying to get back. Yelling at God, why aren't you protecting me? And once you go so far, you start going, well, he might not even be real. And the whole time he's going, you're running from me and you're blaming me for the separation? If he is your entire strength in battle and you run from him and then you get hit harder and harder, it's because you decided to go off on a frontal assault by yourself. Come back and things go just fine. Don't separate yourself from the herd. So what does David do? David is chosen by Samuel, but when he's chosen, even his own father doesn't send him up for selection. He doesn't think much of him. He's anointed as king for 25 years before he takes the throne. He's a young man who believes God and decides to face a giant, not because he wanted to go into battle, but because he was upset that this giant, had blasphemed the name of God. That's why he fought him. For 25 years, he's anointed as king. And Saul knows it. That's why he's going after it. And for no fault of his own, he is running for his life and hiding in caves. What is happening? Why would God anoint somebody king and then let them flee for their life for 25 years? Remember the shield? How it's a muscle? David's getting stronger in his faith. He's learning to trust God. In fact, twice, Saul is just putting his hands. Remember, Saul goes to take a crap in a cave, and David cuts off part of it and says, I could have killed you. Another time, Saul's sleeping. David goes up and grabs his spear and his water bottle. Both times, he tells him, I could have killed you. Both times, Saul goes, I'm so sorry. You're, you're far better than I. No wonder he's given you the kingdom. Then he continued to try to kill him. But what happened every time Saul was in his hands? His buddies who were with him said, God has delivered him into your hand. Kill him now. He knew Ephesians 1 before it was ever written. For all authority is appointed by God, and no authority is appointed that is not appointed by God. And he said, he has anointed me king, and when he thinks I'm ready, he will give me the kingdom. I don't take the kingdom. Think of how strong David's shield got at the end. But if in the cave he had taken the kingdom, would he have been ready? Look at the very end. I said, the hits get harder to build the shield up. David flees the entire country of Israel. He ends up in Gath, which is the home of Goliath, whose head he cut off, the giant. He has a fake madness and ends up camping in Ziklag for a while under the Philistines king's gonna go to battle he says you can't come with me I trust you no one else here does you got to go so he goes back to Ziklag and he finds it burning with fire and all of a sudden all of his family all of his men's 600 men's families women and children and all their possessions are being marched off by none other than the Amalekites if you think Hamas and Hezbollah and Isis are are wicked and brutal The Amalekites are the ones who invented skinning people alive. These are wicked people, and now all of their wives and children are in their hands. And what do they do? All 600 contemplate stoning David. Does David stand up and argue for himself? No. says he strengthened himself in the Lord. He says, shall I follow them, go after them, and will I recover all? God says, yep. So he takes all 600 men and off they go. Full charge, full speed. In fact, they make it to a river. And at that river, 200 of his men are so exhausted that they can't go on. So they leave, leave him in the rear with the gear and off they go. Then they come across this lowly servant who had been sick for three days and left for dead. And he goes, you save me and I'll show you where they're at. Off they go. They recover all. What do his men say? We'll give them their wives and their kids back. But their property, they couldn't cross that stream. They don't get their stuff back. And David goes, no. Anyone who is part of the army, whether they fight or they stay in the rear with the gear, are paid the same. Back then, only the people who fought got the spoils of war, except the king. Modern day armies, the structure of support being paid, comes from David. He set that in place. It is that very day that Saul and his family fall on the, f- on the uh, field of battle and the kingdom is given to him. David's shield of faith is not strong enough to protect himself. It protects the entire nation. But think of how that felt for 25 years and all the things he went through. It took being able to exercise that shield of faith through bad things happening to be that strong. And so when Tribulation and trials, sickness, illness, destituteness, whatever it is is—is facing you, don't blame God. Either your free will has gotten you into this situation, and He's still willing to get you out. Or God's training you for something. And if they're getting really hard, He has really big plans. And looking at the church, it seems like everybody is getting hit with unprecedented amounts. Something big is coming. We should be paying attention. That's the shield of faith. Protects us against the attacks. Is built up through trials and tribulations. Is all-encompassing. And when it is big enough and strong enough, can protect you from every attack. But a lot of times we set it down and decide we're going to do it our way. Now we have come to questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, any and all of the above. (laughs) Anybody have any questions? Thank you. Yes, ma'am. I can't hear you. Yes? You know, I'm gonna give you a mic so that you can everybody can hear you. Well the people on Zoom can't hear you. Come on now. Sure. Time to shine. Once I learn how to turn this thing on. It's on. There you go. My question was about believing on the Lord and if somebody had said that they, you know, they believe in Jesus, they've heard about Jesus their whole life, whatever, and they were maybe in a particular religion, but they've, they're clearly not believers in all forms, and he would even admit that, you know, I don't really want that, I don't want to live like that, you know what I mean, but they would say, well, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, sure, so how does that translate with the whole believing on, how would you say if you Network. don't believe you need or accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you believe in him. But you have to believe on him to get into heaven. Um, think of it this way. When we become true Christians, born again, it says that we died to self. Dead people don't have opinions. Believe Go. Yeah, believe, believe on his ability and power. Yeah. But dead people don't have opinions. We are given life thereafter in order to reach others and to experience life through him. Which means if God says, don't do this, or this isn't right, we don't have the right to trump him. And if we try, we become God. And that's idolatry. So God, I've heard people say, well, times change. True, absolutely. God does not. God was the same before he made anything in creation, the same when he created Adam, the same yesterday. He's the same today. He will be the same tomorrow. He will be the same when the tribulation starts. He'll be the same in the millennial reign. he will be the same in eternity. That doesn't change. And if you try to say that because our times have changed, God has to change, you have it backwards. thank you so you couldn't hear her maybe we'll figure that out one time but uh, Linda says she liked the me going rogue style versus me reading my notes so any other thoughts anybody else those of you who have been to other ones do you like this style better do you like when I read for my notes about the same okay Well, I try to stay in line with the slides here and there. I will admit, this was much harder with this thing in my ear, listening to myself echo while I'm talking. So, uh, I'll get used to that. Like voices in my head. But it's mine, so we're okay. All right.